Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Give me the fucking ball. Before I do, just understand, we don't do profanity at Indiana State. Give me the ball. Welcome to the official Winning Time podcast from HBO. I'm Rodney Barnes, executive producer on the show. Larry, no one gets to be as great as you are at this thing unless they love it. Problem on this team is Magic motherfucking Johnson. Mr. Auerbach, still pick me first? Every day and twice on Sunday because you're a goddamn Celtic. To know the whole story of the Showtime Lakers, you gotta talk about the Boston Celtics. No one knows that better than our first guest, Jeff Perlman, author of Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. Then we've got the director of Episode 3, Todd Van Hazel. To finish, we'll close with Assistant Director Sal Sutera for a look at all those things you might have missed in the background. But first, a little recap. Episode 3, titled The Second Coming, follows Larry Bird's journey to basketball greatness and the 1981 national title. Meanwhile, the Lakers try to claw their way back to the championship with money and perseverance. Cracks begin to show on the coaching staff. And thanks to the addition of Honey Kaplan, within the Bus family as well. Some of these scenes and moments and instances are fictional. We add them in to tie facts together and to weave a narrative that is compelling. Again, some things are fictional, but they're inspired by true events that we hope you greatly enjoy and watch from week to week. So let's get into it. Our first guest is Jeff Perlman, the author of the book Showtime, who's been joining us at the top of each episode to help highlight some of the real events that appear in the show and some of the things that we fictionalized. To quote Tupac, I'm here for the blunts and the brews. There you go. There you go. I knew it was something. I knew it was more than just me. We're talking about Larry Bird. Did people know coming out of high school that Larry Bird was this guy, that he was going to be this phenomenon? It's interesting because... If he had come along now in 2023, everybody would have yeah. known because there'd be yeah. clips on Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and blah, 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 blah. And he'd be a phenomenon and he'd be recruited by every school in the country. But coming out of French Lake, Indiana, very few. He was a regional player. Right. UCLA had no idea who Larry Bird was. French Lake, Indiana, home of the great Larry Bird. Yep. Can you talk about what type of place it is? Is it the type of place where we would go to hang out to get tans and just party? Fra- I was curious what the population of French Lick is. 
and I just looked it up. In 2021, and it's grown significantly, it was 1,739 people. Oh, my God. French Lake was middle of nowhere, southern Indiana, nothing to do, nowhere to go, rural farming community, majority, majority, majority white, not a high college education, turf. And generally, if you were growing up in French Lake, you were staying in French Lake. It was one of those towns. And if you were growing up in French Lake and you were staying in French Lake, you were going to work in some sort of agricultural uh, business or a factory job or something like that. So to escape French Lake, as Larry Bird did, makes him a you know one in a gazillion. Was there a reaction in French Lake to Bird becoming who Bird became? Oh, man, yes. It truly almost literally put French Lake on the map. Like, nobody had heard of French Lake. How do you think he got that good playing in the place that he played in? Number one, a love of basketball, just a raw love of basketball. Number two, not to get into cliche, but like a real blue-collar background where it's either you play basketball or you do work that just sucks. Right. And number three, and this is an undervalued sort of thing, is repetition. I mean, Kobe Bryant used to talk about going into a gym when nobody's there and shooting up 500 jumpers. Right. That was Larry Bird before Kobe Bryant. Jumper, 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 this spot, that spot. I'm going to go over here, I'm going to go over there. And he was tall enough and athletic enough. And I mean, also, not for nothing, Indiana especially back then, was a basketball hotbed. Yes, it was. So yes, he wasn't yes, playing yes. against crumbs. He was playing right. against really good players in Indiana. It was just a different style of play. Right, yes. But the one thing he picked up was trash talk. And yeah, trash talk true. like an inner that's city New York player. Yeah. But he didn't shoot like one and he didn't play like one. He had his own style. Was he really that good? Yeah, Bird was freaking amazing. Bird was fantastic. Bird is one of the greatest players of all time. Anyone will tell you that. If you took Larry Bird from 1987 and shot him into 2023, he'd still be a really great NBA player. Um, he was a marksman shooter, outside shooter. He had reins out the wazoo. Yeah, he was yeah. great. And he was savvy and he was smart. You know, yeah, great. And the psychology of the game. Because you're playing against guys that could jump out of the gym at yeah. a certain point, certainly when you get to the NBA. And to be able to get off the shots that he got off of and the number that he got off and the way that he did it. Also, if... If Larry Bird were transported from 80-whatever to today, he'd be on the court, and someone would come up to him before a game. So let's say, like, Joel Embiid would come up to him, and he'd try to give him, like, the bro handshake and lean in, and Bird would be like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, no. And he'd have that mental edge over these guys. Like, yeah. He would slice these guys up. Yeah. There's no, there would be no, like, hey, man, how's it going? How are your kids? No. Yeah. Not. Not at all. Wow. The thing about Larry Bird is he was a guy in a shell. And he was Do very, you think very the good. trauma of his dad committing suicide oh, play a role? Usually. In... First of all, Sean Patrick Small, who plays Larry Bird. Yes, who does an incredible job. Shout out to Sean. Sean's incredible. Ridiculously good and nails it perfectly and really sort of gets the emotional depth of Bird. And a lot of people, if you were a Laker fan going into this series, I think one of the things the show does well is make you really appreciate Larry Bird and where he came from. And you're no longer just going to be like, screw this guy, he's Larry Bird. Yeah. But you realize, yeah, his dad's suicide was a major blow to his life. Made him more determined, made him more ferocious. Do you think it helped with the decision to go to Indiana State? I mean, it didn't hurt. Yeah. It certainly didn't hurt. Well, Bird wrote a, uh, he had an autobiography called Drive with Bob Ryan. It was really, really good. A really, really good sports autobiography. And he talked a lot about the weight of his father's suicide, the depth of that pain, and also the idea of not wanting to be stuck in French like Indiana your whole life and seeing that there's something you can do that's bigger than just being a small-town yokel. And he didn't want to be that guy. Did Larry Bird really play at Indiana with the boots 
and the jeans, is that like the first trial at, at Indiana State? Was that scene that we have in this episode true to life? Yes. He did play in the boots and the jeans. I mean, you have to remember, though, like, he's one of the greatest players of all time in Indiana State. Larry Bird leading Indiana State to the national championship game would be no different if he went to Delaware or Drexel yeah. or Pepperdine yeah. or UC Irvine and led them to the national championship game. It was that singularly amazing of a feat that he took this Division One program mm-hmm. and carried them to the cusp of a championship. It's a remarkable achievement. I, I wanted to just shift for a moment to what do you think the effect of losing so early in the playoffs, the Lakers losing so early in the playoffs, had on the team overall? I think, first of all, you come off of uh, the glory of being a champion, and then suddenly you're a dud. You're a total dud. And when that happens in a big market, it's different because the weight of expectations are very high. And when people love you, love you, love you, and then you know, yeah. you're a failure and you're a loser— One of the great motivators in sports is disappointment, failure, being a bust. And I think for a lot of those guys, certainly Magic, certainly Nixon, to a certain degree Kareem, losing that early. And not just losing, but losing to a very forgettable Houston Rockets team was a tremendous sort of motivator. Did Bus, Magic, and Norm actually share a meal and iron things out? Yeah. He actually took them to Vegas at one point. They went on a trip together to Vegas the Norm Magic relationship is actually really intriguing because uh, they weren't enemies. Like, they were never enemies. Yeah, I never thought. I never saw them as enemies. No. Yeah. And they were both hardworking players, hard-driven players. Norm definitely had a chip on his shoulder, and rightly so. He was the point guard, and they bring this guy in, and he kind of takes his job, and he takes his glory and all that stuff. But, yeah, like, you know, they went to Vegas together. They had a good time. Yeah. Let's talk about the tensions between Westhead and Riley. We've kind of worked on this narrative of Riley being appreciative of being an assistant coach, but Westhead having an issue with Riley because seemingly, without saying it, Westhead saw that Riley had the stuff to be a head coach Mm. and was probably more suited to be a head coach. Do you think that was real? Well... Westhead definitely felt threatened by Riley, and he later talked about that. And he felt like it was this guy who was very ambitious and really wanted to be a head coach and had his own ideas of how you should run a team. I don't think Pat Riley was undercutting Paul Westhead. I think he knew how to coach, and I think he he looked at a guy like Magic and thought, I can help this guy. Right. And Westhead was a young coach, was a new coach, was the accidental coach, wasn't supposed to be there. He definitely felt threatened by it all. But I do not think Pat Riley was gunning for the job. I'm sure he felt, oh, one day I'm going to be a head coach in this league. But I don't think he was trying to undercut. Do you think they could have coexisted? If, like, say, Westhead was a little more secure, seemingly, do you think they could have coexisted? No, because Pat Riley was a better coach, and you can't have your assistant coach be a better coach than you, especially if you know it. Wow. In a lot of ways, West, it's weird. He got the contract. He got the wins. But in a weird sense, West had walked into a really thankless situation because he took over for a guy who was the preferred coach and who everyone wanted. Then he gets this assistant coach who had Laker ties and wasn't afraid to express his opinions and wasn't bashful and had the ear of players. So you have this guy, he's not even supposed to be the coach. He's this guy tr- dropping ridiculous Shakespeare references to guys who have never 
I've never thought of Shakespeare, you know, like. Never considered. Never considered it. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of comes off as cartoonish. And I feel like in a lot of ways, West had never really had a shot to be a long-term, long-term Laker coach. He just had a lot of things going against him. Because he went on to coach, he coached Loyola Marymount. Yeah. He coached the WNBA. The Alex English teams, I believe. Yeah, Yeah. with Fat Lever and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He coached at Portland State, I think. I would actually rather have lived his coaching journey than Pat Riley's. Like, I really? think because I think it's really fascinating and really fun. And he's been all over the globe coaching basketball. I think at the end of the day, life is about experiences. And for me personally, I look at Pat Riley's life, and yeah, you've won a lot, but it, it all seems kind of repetitive. And Paul West said, like, he's going to look back at the very end of his life and he's going to be like, that. well, that was a fucking great journey. Jeff, once again, you've enlightened me. So thank you again for driving three hours. 17 hours. Thank you. And I look forward to doing this with you again. And um, we'll be able to talk a little bit more winning time. To quote my hero, Vanilla Ice, it was an honor to rock the mic like a vandal. (laughs) With that, thank you all for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a fan of winning time and the unique look of the show and all of that, My next guest is responsible for that. Director of photography, Todd Van Hazel. Hi, Rodney. Hey, Todd. The bridge from director of photography to actually directing an episode, what was that like? The difference for me was once I was directing, I was just so 100% with the actors and their emotional experience that, like, everything else kind of became, like, in service to that, which I do as a director of photography, and I thought I did, but I didn't realize, like, the amount of space that was going to take up in the best way possible because it made it so that all the other things became me trusting my collaborators and trusting all the communication we had, especially with my director of photography, Rick Diaz, who shot my episode, because I had no choice other than to really exist on the wavelength that the actors were in. And that was amazing. That felt great. Mm-hmm. I think also one of the reasons it was so, in some ways, easy to direct this show was because of how brilliant the cast is. Yes, Like, how brilliant too. and yeah. generous. Yeah. And, like, actually, it was so much fun every day. I've heard directors talk about this phenomenon, and I experienced it as a DP by the monitor, but, like, really feeling like, oh, my God, when you have brilliant actors, mm-hmm. you just, like, get to sit there and be the first person to watch these brilliant, incredible performances in these yeah. takes. It's such a joy. I, so, I don't know. I feel like cheating. Season two... We really get into the bird-magic rivalry more than anything else. It's probably the foundation of a lot of what season two is. How would you see that? For me, the whole season was about building towards, like, this battle, this, Mm -hmm. like, big— Actually, the season for me is kind of like the Two Towers, the second Lord of the Rings movie. It's like you're like the first one you set it up, and then like we're building towards this like battle of these two dynasties, these two characters, these two owners. So everything for me was about moving towards that. And I think also the big thing is that we are building up Larry Bird to be like this big, undefeatable villain, and at yeah. the same time, we're humanizing him. So like a lot of the season for me was about balancing yeah. how do we set him up as this larger-than-life obstacle and also, yeah, just really humanize him. And I think to a degree, it's difficult to respect magic without respecting Bird. Yes. If you just look at him as Apollo Creed, mm-hmm. you know, and just the other shade of the thing that's the bad guy that we have to overcome, you really don't get the depth of what the story really is. And the story is Larry Bird worked just as hard as Magic Johnson yes. did. 
And, and they both deserve. They both deserve to be, to be here yeah. and to be in this position and to beat right each now. other. Exactly. Yeah. That was my favorite part of season two, just the evolution of Bird and the idea of him more so than just the bad guy in green. Yes, 100%. And also his relationship. I really enjoyed the dualistic relationships between Magic and Bus yes. and Bird and Red. Like yeah. these kind of like paternal, yes. there's a lot of parallels there. This is the closest thing to a bottle episode we've done. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are really heavily plotted and they're pieces that come together and end up at a satisfying conclusion. But here, we go back in time. Was this a, a difficult ride for you? I mean, yeah, it's hard. But, like, the joyful challenge of the episode for me is how to handle Bird's backstory tonally. Yeah. Uh, as it we're discussing class yeah. and we're discussing trauma and we're discussing suicide and it's like a lot of different things that are very complicated and so I think for us finding the tone of that was the key and I think for me what I found is that we treated it like a spaghetti western for me personally okay. and like there's like an epic mythic quality to the retelling of Bird's story and at the same time it wants to be incredibly empathetic and simple and human so it's like I think the trick for us was that the camera and the filmmaking techniques were allowed to play it in this kind of epic way, like a Western. Mm -hmm. But everything that's going on between Sean and the world and him as an actor, him as a character, and between me and him, director and actor, is all about just the simple emotional truth of that moment. I think finding that tone was the thing. I think one of the words you just used, I wanted to highlight the word class. In a lot of these stories where you're talking about basketball players and race the black guy, more often than not, had the harder upbringing. Totally. Than the white guy. Yeah, which is why it's so interesting because exactly. Bird's story. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. Bird came up in the dysfunctional family. Yeah. Bird came up with no money. And on the other side, Magic had loving mom, dad, mm -hmm. brothers, yes. sisters, yes. middle class home, had support emotionally. Whereas Bird had to sort of, I won't say fend for himself, but he had to find. Yep you know, uh, support in different types of ways, which probably plays into why he's such a great ball player. Yeah, but we just didn't want to romanticize that. Yeah. It's like you want to yeah. represent it and, and do yes. it justice, but you don't want to romanticize yes. it in either direction. Yes. It's really the story of him finding the kind of, like, kind of the kind of father figure he needs to have the courage to get to where he went to. Because for me, the, the, at least the way the episode works is, like, you know, he has his actual relationship with his father, and then that becomes his relationship with Bill Hodges, the mm -hmm. assistant coach, and then that gets him so far, and then that becomes his relationship with Red, which takes him all the way. So for me, that's, like, sort of the, how we chart it. Right after the Celtics win the 81 championships, mm -hmm. we have a shot where Bird and Red are talking, and Red blows smoke from the cigar. It comes through the television. Yeah. Where do shots like that come from? Where does that idea begin? I mean, for me, that begins on the page. The scripts for Winning Time not only break the fourth wall, like literally when a character talks to camera, but like yeah. the themes and ideas there's in the scripts are so powerful that they break the fourth wall. And for me, the idea is, like, the cigar smoke is coming out of the TV. It's so, it means so much to Magic right. and Bus that they're losing, that they're not going to be there this time, that, like, literally, the Celtics bragging with these cigars comes through their TV and hits them in the face, literally. I think the more grounded we executed these ideas, like, visually, the more we just made it literally, no, they're smoking cigars and it's coming out of the TV into the room we're in now. You just play it straight. That's the tone of winning time, I think. So let's talk about Indiana for a moment because our show takes place primarily in Los Angeles. And we see 
the beauty, the glamour, the glitz, and all of that stuff. And in the Larry Bird portion of this story, we're in French Lick, Indiana. Can you talk about the juxtaposition between the two and how you decided to take one and, you know, make it so different from the other visually? So the main visual decision is my cinematographer, Rick Diaz, and myself decided that we would shoot the Larry Bird flashbacks in 16-millimeter anamorphic widescreen, both in widescreen so that it felt more kind of mythic and larger than life and like a Western as mm-hmm. compared to the show. It's the first time we ever change aspect ratio in the show. I mean, we go to like 4.3 for television stuff, but it's the four, first time we do like something more cinematic. And then the other thing is shooting it on 16, so it's also like even more documentary and more gritty uh, than our normal footage. Uh, so that was like the main way to visually understand which world you were in. That's the basic mechanism. Was there a struggle to create balance between the two worlds, the backstory stuff, Mm. with the ongoing narrative? No, I think actually the point of the Winning Time style is that maximalist approach where the more contrast, the more difference between styles, the better it works. So I think the, the goal was to lean in as far as possible. Did you do any research about Bird's background? And what was the relationship with uh, the great Sean Smalls who plays Larry Bird? Oh, Sean Smalls. And did an incredible job for the show. What was that relationship like? Because he's the engine that's making the car go in this episode. All of my conversations with Sean, all of our prep work had to do with talking about the emotional space that Bird was coming from at that time in his life and also the trauma that Mm -hmm. he experienced as a child, both as like a young child and then with his father throughout the relationship and to now. So I think Sean is incredibly prepared actor, and he comes incredibly emotionally prepared. So the conversations that we had leading up to it all had to do with his past and where what was left inside of him now emotionally. And from there, he is so brilliant. He takes all that ammunition and brings it to what we're doing at that moment, you know, live. How did you approach the suicide aspect of Bird's dead? Did it stand out in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my work with Sean, it was about just talking about where he was going to be emotionally. Mm-hmm. And then outside of Sean, like the filmmaking around that, the idea was that we can't visually really truly understand what it's like for someone to experience something like this. So what we are going to do is represent the feeling of his memory of it and limit how far that memory can get to. So it's like the camera can only see what he thinks he remembers or what he's comfortable remembering or what isn't too painful to remember. So a lot of that scene is spent on the back of his head, and it's also spent shooting through his father's body to him. But we kind of do our best to, like, intentionally avoid the horror of what's happening. How good is Sean as a basketball player? Sean is an unbelievable basketball player, and he plays like Bird. Sean would just take after take after take after take, shot after shot, just make it, make it, make it, and shoot it like Bird, you know, that little dip back. and like. But that's also because Sean takes it so seriously. And he, he does. practices, I mean. I want to talk about race for a moment. The Lakers-Celtics rivalry had racial undertones under all of it, under the basketball. You have Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, black eye, white guy. But the style of play sort of speaks to the yeah. cities that they're from, the values that certain basketball fans hold dear. You know, Magic is flamboyant. The passes, they, they go beyond conventional basketball play. 
Where Bird stays more in the box. Mm -hmm. He plays the game the way, in quotes, some would say it should be played. Good old-fashioned. Good old-fashioned. Did any of the racial storylines or the themes that were under all of this, do you have any point of view about any of this? How did it make you feel? Did you give it any thought? Yeah, it's for me is it was it's always the most important part of winning time and it's injected into every decision we make visually, emotionally, it's in all the storytelling, it's in the basketball, it's in every single it's in the DNA for sure. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was very important to me and I think it's what you're saying like even the style of basketball is part of that discussion of like mm-hmm. the new way, like mm-hmm. a new way to see America and an old way to see mm-hmm. America and like and the towns of Boston versus L.A. Totally. And we have joy. We play. We have fun about that. And it's yeah. also very serious. It's, it comes down to the casting of the extras. It's it's how the crowds look like in the different arenas. It's in the skin tone. It's how we light skin. It's it's in every fiber of every moment of the show. Yeah. One of the things I always thought that was unique about Lay Bird is regardless of what the world put on him as a white player who happened to be great, he never seemed to be to fall prey to any of that as far as himself as a man. No, totally. He was there to play basketball. He was there to play basketball regardless of who was across from him. Yeah. It didn't matter who it was. And we have that scene where he's playing with the black guys, Mm -hmm. you know, after work. Yeah, yeah. And there's no mention of race. There's No. no discussion. There's no talk. We're just playing basketball. Did you and Sean talk about any or did Sean express any of this when he was talking about being Larry Bird? Yeah, 100%. Well, we talked a lot about uh, where the cockiness is coming from and what the yes. cockiness is doing, and both as like a means to a style of playing basketball and also as a way to like um, shield his wounds from childhood. Definitely, it's it's totally there. I mean, I think the the cultural implications are put on both players by yeah. Yeah. society. By the world. Except yeah, by yeah. the world. And magic, too. And I think too, television... I think, almost projected onto them, this is how I see them. Regardless of who they are as individuals, this is who I'm going to make them as characters. But I don't think those two guys ever played into that beyond the game itself. No, I think they want to be the best, and they want to beat each other. They want to be better than each other, yeah. Does real basketball influence how you approach shooting basketball? Like, do you look at games and say, okay? Yeah, we would always look at the real plays. There's a component of the... As much as we're talking about wanting to shoot the basketball as like emotionally and thematically specific in each scene, we also want to always then remind people that these games really happened, that they are like legendary games that were broadcast. So a lot of the work was also spent shooting the games from our television cameras in the exact places that the TV cameras went. So a lot of the watching the real games was spent understanding how to make the our fake broadcast images feel real and like what's the actual pace of that basketball and what's it actually look like and... My favorite stuff is also, like, the sideline stuff when, like, Riley, when Adrian Brody's, like, yelling as the coach yeah. and the TV camera just goes over to him, handheld. It's something about, like, that old format on the yeah. TV format, but, like, seeing our actor acting, it just comes alive. It's my favorite stuff. There's a pretty key scene in this episode where Coach Westhead has brought on another coach and just threatens Pat Riley. Mm-hmm. Paul. This, this has nothing to do with you, Pat. It's about your, your friend there, Jerry. Look, he really put us on the back foot last year. That Thompson thing, I can't let it happen again. So I need somebody loyal. Somebody I can trust to do my scouting. Stop trusting me. If you did, then say so. Do me a favor. We're good, Pat. Can you talk about that scene a little bit? 
Sure. I mean, I think for me, that scene is part of uh, especially Westhead's journey also towards like the fall of a king, you know, and you see it coming. There's yeah, a you thing see it coming. That's coming. Yeah. And once we get to this point, it's almost like there's a point of no return. Yeah. There's nowhere we're going to go back. These guys are never going to recreate what they had in season one, yeah. that camaraderie and yeah, that the sense of connection. Is... And you see it fraying. Yeah. You know, and I think to me, one of the strongest parts of season two is watching that thread unravel yep. between those two. Which I think they both charted it as actors so brilliantly because yes. it is, like, delicate, and they are still trying to, like, maintain, like, the threads of that friendship while the thing's falling apart and ego is taking over, and yeah. What were your favorite scenes in this episode that you shot? One of my favorite scenes is... um the scene at the end be- when Norm is invited over and is intimidated by magic and bus. I Godfather love that. Likes yes, yeah. the, the hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Dr. Bus, I just play basketball. You're damn right you do, and you do it well. But this is a question of chemistry. You know what I'm saying? I just want people to be happy. Norm, I just want you to be happy. And if you two can't be happy on the same team, well... That's something we can deal with. Because truly, I could trade you to any team in this league. Any team would be happy to have you. You're that good. I ain't asking to go nowhere, Dr. Buzz. No? No. Because if we're being honest, I cannot have another losing season. I just can't. Everything about that scene for me was about treating it like a hit was about to happen. We Quincy, sh- we, Quincy was great. In that he's scene. unbelievable. Everybody's great. Yeah. But when Quincy with the melon. Yes. And the eyes. I remember talking about like every bite of a carrot, every bite of like a piece of charcuterie yeah. should feel like a, like a gunshot going off. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. I mean, we basically designed that scene, shot it as if a mafia hit is happening. I love that scene between the three of them because you look at where they've gotten from the beginning. I mean, think about Norm in the in the pilot mm-hmm. in the first episode, like all that bravado and cockiness and power he has over Magic, and you look at where things have come to this point. And it also speaks to Bus and Magic's relationship in a very specific way. You see in this scene that it goes beyond basketball. Yeah, that there's a level of commitment that Dr. Buss has made to magic on a personal level, yep. on an emotional mm-hmm. level, that's different than he's going to have with any other player. Yeah. In that locker room. Yeah, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. And I think Norm is finding that out the hard way yeah. in this moment. Yeah. One of the creative things we do on the show is we break the fourth wall. And people ask me, you know, why we do this. And more importantly, what I'd like to ask you is, how is that device used in this show in such a way that it doesn't take you out of the scene? The trick for us is that we always make sure that characters interrupt shots that were meant for something else. Mm -hmm. Outside of like monologues, like specialty monologues in general, we never set a special shot for a character to look to camera. We always made it so that the cameras were just trying to shoot. It it was almost like the cameras are just trying to shoot the show and Mm -hmm. tell the story. And then much to their behest, the characters are interrupting that. So like often like a character won't look into a camera that's set for them, but they'll look over their shoulder and steal the shot from someone else. So it's like things like that. It plays into the caught feeling that I think the whole show has, that kind of half documentary, half like it's mm-hmm. about to fall off the rails. Like there's a there's a caught energy in it that I think is maintained with the way characters break the fourth wall. I always look at it as you could have a broad comedic scene up against a scene that's incredibly dramatic. Yeah. 
up against a scene that's pure basketball, mm-hmm. and it all feels like it fits. Yeah, it's a collage. Yeah, of different things. Yeah. Collage, perfect word for you. You have this weird superpower. You make this fun. Whether you're a director of photography or a director, there's this Todd thing to where it doesn't feel like work. Where does that come from? Because it is a form of leadership. The ability to come in and make work feel like it's not necessarily work. How'd you get it? Man, I really appreciate you saying that, Rodney. First of all, I consider it my job. I really do think it is my job, either as the director of photography or as the director, just as a department head, to move the machine in that way. And I don't know, I just really deeply love this thing, and I deeply respect this thing, and I don't know how to do it unless we are bringing absolutely everything to it and also bringing joy to it. Because I believe that when we are in a joyful space and in a safe space together, that's the only way that really good work happens. So in some ways, I don't feel like it's a choice because the other way, like drilling it into submission, I don't think yields good work. So the only way for me is to like show up and create a process of work where we are constantly reminding each other how much we love this, how much fun we're having, or even when it's hard, like how much joy there can be in just like doing it right, you know, or like pushing to find that magic, you know? So I don't know. That's just the way I like to work. So that's Mm -hmm. the way I want set to feel for everyone around me. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for your brilliant work and what you bring to this show and what you bring to the casting crew. Again, your spirit, your energy, your heart makes this truly a joyous place to come to. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you for your kind words. It's time for the buzzer beater. Today, we're going to talk to one of the unsung heroes of winning time, assistant director Sal Cetera. Sal, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk background. You know, I've always wondered, as I'm watching television, as I watch this winning time show, and you see those thousands of people in the stands, and you're in Boston, and you see all those white people, and then you're in the forum in L.A., and you see this potpourri of humanity (laughs) assembled all about. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that all comes together? The very first thing, when you get a script, you know, the assistant directors kind of get a feel for each scene, the numbers, the types of people, what's going on in the scene. And there's something that we usually start off with at a concept meeting. From the get-go, and we start off the train by getting everyone's take of what their expectation was when writing that scene. Mm-hmm. Is it chaotic? Is there only a few people? Who are those people? What's the grit? What's the feel? What's the texture that you want to add to this story? Because background actors, like many things, whether it's production design, costume, hair, makeup, cars, they sell the period. So you're on the day of. It's 5 in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's 500 people standing outside. Yeah. After they've gotten their COVID test, yeah. then what happens? So then, first thing, they, they start getting through what we call the works. They start getting ready. You know, mm-hmm. So every person has to go see hair, makeup, and costumes to get into the 1980s look and feel of what we're going for. And the whole world is prepped for that look. It's all ready to go. We just need the bodies process everybody then they go go to props maybe get their glasses those those retro old school big yep. eye glasses or sunglasses people wearing sunglasses in the courts all in those days too yeah. you know and then they go to set so you got them in set 
Is there a technique of sorts psychologically to control a thousand people and to get them to do what you need them to do? Yeah. So as you've seen, like when I'm running the set on a mm-hmm. basketball day, mm-hmm. I'm on the mic and we have a great mic system set up from our sound people that are just allow me to communicate to a a forum full of fans and all sorts of background actors, right? It's the fine line of going back and forth of getting them hyped when it's time to recreate Showtime basketball. Then on those off times, getting everyone to settle down, it's like great emotion during that time. That's great. Now just keep it in. We're we're trying to work into that next shot when I'm then going to have to get you guys back on up. You know, and for me... I used a lot of stuff that I learned back in the day of, you know, when I was MC doing stuff in my music days prior to film and such, of just knowing how to hype up a crowd, you know? And sometimes certain takes might be good for some angst at a certain decibel level, like at a 10. Yeah. And then, hey, next setup where we're going a little tighter, that's a little too much. I need you to reel it back in, you know? Does it become more difficult? I'm thinking about the riot scene Yo. and the 201, <laughs> where yeah. you have stunt people that are there and people who are designated to do certain things yeah. mixed in with background. Does it make your job harder? It does. So I was in the crowd, right? Yes. I was there, like, trying to corral this thing because I don't know if you remember, but... After the first take, I realized nobody yeah. could hear us. Yeah. I was trying to yell cut as top of my lungs. And I'm pretty loud when yeah. I want to be. And I couldn't. And as a result, that's when I went to the electrics and our DP and said, we need some sort of light system right. to signal when we cut. Because that's the only way people are going to know. Because it's so loud. And they feed off the energy of those stunt players. Yeah. And really on camera, it mm-hmm. looked amazing. Yeah. It sold. But it was chaotic. It was chaos. I remember looking, and I immediately felt bad for, like, Dr. King and all of the people back in Selma and those mm-hmm. in the Deep South. Yeah. Because it felt real. It felt real. Exactly. And not for nothing, but it's those moments where a lot of scenes aren't believable unless the yes. extras are yeah, believable. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. That's the only way you're going to yes. pull this off. Yes. And a lot of times, not everything they always do from project to project, yeah. they're always on different things, gives them the opportunity to be so vital. Yes. We got to sell it. And our show, for a lot of the things that we do, our set pieces, our, our press conferences, yes. you know, and all yes. this stuff. The reporters. The yes. reporters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, yeah. sell it. Their yes. look, their smoking habits, they their, yes. you know, their, their fidgety, like, yeah. all shapes and sizes, they sell that to us. All right, so Sal, you got your regular days because you're a machine and things mm. just go perfectly and you, you come in on time and everybody's ready and everything's perfect. Mm. Can you tell us anything about a bad day or the worst winning time extras day ever? Oh, man. I think one of the biggest things that always comes to mind was this past season, season two, of the Forum Club. It's a deceivingly small set, but yes. with a lot of stuff that makes it look big, but it's actually still small. And it's very hot in there, and too. And it's hot. Yes. And those scenes with a hundred and something, you know, extras, and then our cast we did i remember doing a specific scene we had you know jerry jerry west we had genie bus there it was claire rothman everybody almost like it was a full room post celebration of a victory and everything and that day because we were doing some beautifully 
orchestrated steady cam work, you know, kind of taking us from one person to the next to the next kind of thing. I remember the extras that day were just love them to death. But, I, you know, I remember every time constantly telling everyone to just settle down because it was almost like a, it was a party. It is really tough when you have 100 people like that trying to rein them back in. Yeah. Sal, thank you again for coming in no, on this incredibly you, hot Los Angeles day <laughs> and sitting down and talking to me. It's been fantastic. I, I hope we get a season three, if only to put you back in the forum club and push you to the limit. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Look forward to talking again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast. A special thank you to our guests, author Jeff Perlman, director Todd Van Hazel, and assistant director Sal Cetera. Next week, we'll be back to talk about episode four, where it's back to the Lakers and their problems. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Winning Time airs on HBO. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Rodney Barnes. We'll talk to you next week. The official Winning Time podcast is a production of HBO, Hyperobject Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. Our producers are Bria Mariette, Noah Camuso, and Elliot Adler. Darby Maloney is our editor. Our engineers are Harry Nelson, Davey Sumner, and Jason Richards. Our executive producers at Hyperobject Industries are Harry Nelson and Claire Slaughter, with production support from Zaley Mahoney. Our executive producers from Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts.